So in this episode of the podcast, I'm going to talk about something that I normally don't talk about, uh, and that's country music. Now, if you listen to the podcast regularly, what you know is that we talk about all things leadership. I did an episode uh, on Dr. Seuss. I did an episode on the book Ender's Game, the fiction book that was turned into a movie. Uh, here, I'm a little out of my element, though. That's why I have help. Um, and so we're going to be talking about country music lessons about leadership and business from country music. Stay tuned. In a world of incompetent bosses, micromanagers, and petty tyrants, one management professor claims that he can help you become the kind of leader that you would want to follow. You are listening to The Leadersmith. Now, here is your host, Darren Gertis. Okay, so as I told you in the introduction, we're going to be talking about country music. Now, I have no business talking about country music. Uh, I grew up in New Jersey. I know only one person that I grew up with that actually listened to country music. Um, I, so it's a new experience for me. But over the weekend, I was with uh, a good friend of mine. His name is Maxwell Rollins. He's here. Thank you for joining us, Maxwell. Sure. Happy to be here. Okay, so Maxwell and I were at the Christian Business Faculty Association meeting in Nashville, Tennessee. That's Music City. And uh, so we were there presenting a paper. Oh, by the way, Maxwell, I, I have your copy of our uh, Best Paper Award. Good job. I'll bring, I'll bring this into you uh, right. later on today. Um, and so while we're there, oh, by the way, I'm also, if, if you're watching on YouTube, you can see this. If you're just listening on the uh, podcast, you can't. But I'm seeing, uh, this is as country as I get with my, guess what, chicken <laughs> butt shirt. So uh, I'm trying to, you know, fit into the to, to the mold here. Um, so we presented our paper. And then in the afternoon, when we had some free time, uh, Maxwell said, hey, uh, I'm planning to go to the country music hall of fame do you want to join me and my reaction was absolutely why not i mean it's something i know almost nothing about okay so now i'm i'm telling you all this background because anybody who's listening to this particular episode either is just willing to listen to anything that rolls out of my mouth which is probably not the case or they're a country music fan which is probably more the case right okay so if they are a country music fan i just want them to be aware right up front. I'm ignorant as the day is long about this topic. Okay. So I, again, I, so I had no business even walking around the country music hall of fame. I mean, it was just, it was a weird experience for me, but it was really interesting. So we're walking around and as you remember, I'm walking around going, okay, I recognize three people. I recognize four people. I got by the time I got about halfway through the all the exhibits, I recognized maybe a dozen, and then I just kind of knocked it off. I probably recognized two dozen, maybe three dozen names tops. That's that's how woefully ignorant I am. Now you, on the other hand, were almost having the opposite experience. At one point, I said I'm up to nine, and you said, "Yeah, there's only about three that I don't know." <laughs> right now, you've right. been a DJ for many years. Um, what's the name of the DJ, your, your mobile DJ thing here in Charleston? Sure. Uh, Jay Maxwell's Music by Request, which I've had for 40 years. But uh, perhaps, and of course, we get requests for country music. Most of the time, the request will be the standards. But I was on four different radio stations as a DJ. Right. Uh, even when I was very young, I say very young, we're talking uh, junior and senior in high school. Yeah. And three out of four of the radio stations were country music stations. Yeah. 
oddly enough, I was never a fan of country. You know, but you know a ton of them. I know it. I, I know I, it. Like, like yeah. your knowledge of it was like inverse. Like, I know like one percent. You had the other ninety nine percent. So, <laughs> uh, it was it was really fascinating how much you understood about this. So, and that's why I, I said, you know, it would be great to unpack this. That and you have the same business understanding, so we we could track in the same ways. Okay, so we're walking around, and like I said, I recognized almost nothing. And you recognize most of it. My first really aha moment in the Country Music Hall of Fame was when I realized subjective value. And that's, you know, from business, like something's worth more to you than it's worth to me or vice versa. And I was thinking, you know, I'm looking behind these glass displays and people are ooing and aahing about things. Um, and I see like an old guitar, old clothes, um, some, you know, papers that are really old and my first aha is that that's worth nothing to me, but there are people here who would like be just thrilled to have these things. So there's a subjective value. Like some, some things, you know, I would put, I would put out in a rummage sale and they, <laughs> and they would think this is worth, and, and people will pay millions of dollars because it's related to a particular artist. So that was my first aha. And we're, as we're walking around, I mentioned that to you. Um, and like, but that's the only language I could speak to you. It's almost like having to translate between uh you have three three different speakers you have a english some somebody who can speak english and german and somebody who can speak german and russian and i'm mm -hmm. speaking english to the russian i mean that, that you know i it's a weird kind of thing but you seem you saw much more value behind the cases tell me what you saw in the cases sure well i you mentioned a rummage sale and sometimes you see an, an old hat or an old price tag on something, and you go, "Huh, hey, the price tag is still on here." If you know who Minnie Pearl is, and you know her mark is this little hat with uh, some flowers and the price tag, and it turns out that the the price tag <laughs> she actually did not mean to leave on there the first time she did a show, and the tag just kind of came down, and people started laughing at it. It became a part of her image. And so if you were a fan or knew who Minnie Pearl was, you're looking at the hat with the price tag. And you had seen it so many times on different shows, uh, the Grand Ole Opry, He Hall, you knew that was a part of Minnie Pearl. Yeah, I, I knew the name from Minnie the Pearl. price tag itself. Oh, my goodness. I had heard the name Mini Pearl, but I had no context. I hadn't. I had not a hook to hang that on. Um, yeah. And I and you you know you were telling me about the price tag thing. I I didn't understand. I mean, it was it was all all new experience to me. Yeah. So now, what's interesting here is that um, as I'm walking around, I'm watching people, and for me, I'm I'm going there like a cultural anthropologist, right? Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to see like what's this all about. There are people who it was like a religious experience for them. It was almost a pilgrimage to them. They're like, oh, it's, oh, it's, I mean, they're hyperventilating, looking at things. And I, it was really interesting. And as a foreigner coming to this, I, it just seemed odd. But what it established for me is obviously there's a market, right? Mm -hmm. It's not my market. It's not one that I understand or really had cared about, but people desperately care about. And uh, so that was somewhat revelatory to me, just how 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 much it was. Now you told me this interesting story, the hee haw story. Mm -hmm. can, can you tell that that hee haw story again? Because that, no, that was great. That, that really illustrates like my perception as opposed to. So go ahead. 
First of all, I don't know if you said this before, but I grew up in South Georgia. Mm-hmm. I so, uh, grew up on a farm. So a lot of the television that uh, we, we watched and clearly the music my parents listened to was country. And there was a, uh, a series on TV for many years called He Hall. And it was a variety show, music and comedy. But of course, everybody on there was country, 100%. And, and so when I joined the Navy, and this is in the uh, 1977, this is actually happening now in 1978, and I brought someone home with me, and he was from Michigan. Now, he had watched the TV show, I guess. He knew about Hee Haw. But uh, because he and I had been through boot camp together and through our machinist mate school, now we were in nuclear power school, we had been friends for about a year. I hadn't even gone home with him to Michigan. And so he he listened to how I talked. And so he assumed that everyone talked like I did. Mm-hmm. And when he went home with me, uh, my girlfriend was there uh, at my house. My mom and dad were there. We had been there for maybe an hour, hour and a half. And he takes me out to, into the backyard and he goes, can you tell them to stop the hee-haw act? Because he really thought that the whole hee-haw on TV was an act and that my parents and girlfriend were kind of going along with it to kind of pull him, kind of pull his leg, make him part of some sort of joke. And I go, oh, this is actually how we talk here. It's just one reason. <laughs> because I was already a DJ. And so I, I didn't have a, uh, a Southern voice because of that, that he thought everyone talked normal like I did yeah and so what I took away from that was because I I, you told me that story there and I was like wow that's really interesting and the there are a couple interesting things about it but the first part of it was like hee-haw was reflecting their reality and Mm -hmm. so it was you know marketing to that group I mean and 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 they were responding in kind with devotion I've seen hee-haw on tv and went click (laughs) <laughs> right? I, I probably watched an, uh, a total of five minutes in my life before that day. Uh, I watched five more minutes in the museum. So I have a total of 10 minutes now. I doubled. I've expanded doubled. my. Right. So, I mean, just to get a sense of it, after you told me the story, I was like, oh, OK, let's see what this is. Um, but I had no idea. So it's reflecting their lives. So, again, there's this market for it. And and it's speaking meaningfully to a large segment of people. Okay. Uh, and that's not to say all Southerners are hee-haw or anything like that. By the way, if anybody's listening to this uh, and you're in the South, I love the South, right? I mean, I, I moved, I got, I escaped New Jersey uh, and moved <laughs> to Virginia. And I've been in Virginia my entire adult life until I moved to South Carolina. Happy to be here. I just never adopted country music because it, it just never was my scene. Okay. But so there is this market. We've established it. Now, the second thing that came to me was uh, segmentation. And, and I realized that. And I, w- I mentioned that to you while, while we were there. I was like, wow, that's really interesting. I didn't realize there were so many varieties of country music, like from the early days when we're seeing the people putting together the first banjos and guitars and whatever, trying to you know do something. And again, this is entertainment, right? In the 80s, you had a boom box. So maybe that Maybe we've regressed, (laughs) right? (laughs) But I mean, they were trying to entertain themselves. So we had, but you have different categories. And I don't know 
if I'm hitting very different distinct categories, you can disabuse me. But Merle Haggard, that's a name I recognize. Big and Rich is a modern something. Mm -hmm. Willie Nelson is kind of a, he's been around for a while, but kind of a 60s, 70s figure. Alan Jackson, probably 80s, 90s, mm -hmm. right? Now, I, I understand enough of them to name them and the name like really old for Merle. Um, Big and Rich is new. Willie Nelson in that time. Alan Jackson in that time. But they're in different categories, like, and not everybody who likes one is going to like the other necessarily. And so I found that segmentation to be really, really fascinating. Help me, help me out. What, what am I missing or, or what can you expand? I guess there's like a bluegrass crowd as well, right? What else? Uh, it, it's kind of similar to, I'll say rock and roll as a mobile DJ, for example, many times people will come up and say, can you play some rock and roll? What do you mean by that? Uh, or do you want some, uh, you know, Buddy Holly? Or do you want Led Zeppelin? And sometimes they would say, no, no, I, I want some Madonna. I go, oh, I, I wasn't even thinking about Madonna yeah. being rock and roll. Uh, same thing with country. Somebody might come up and say, can you play some country? And I'll go, oh, you betcha. And so I'll play some Hank Williams Jr. Mm -hmm. No, 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 no. I want Hank Williams Sr. Yeah. That's a that's a really interesting point too. And before I'm I'm cutting you off here, yeah. um, but are there like legacies or dynasties or things along those lines, like like Hank Williams and Hank Williams Jr. And there's like like heritage here too. Sure. And uh, just you know Johnny Cash and Roseanne Cash, uh, and before that uh, the Carter family, kind of a, a legacy there. Uh, right. the, the Outlaws, if you will, which came out in the '70s. That was the uh, Willie Nelson. Jesse Coulter, um, see Wayland and Willie, kind of, kind of the outlaw movement there, uh, Tom Glazier. Um, and some people who uh, you know, really crossed over, uh, they were both pop and, and country. Uh, Glenn Campbell comes to mind. Right. Um, What's uh, her name on the, on the, on the uh, insurance commercials? Um, Taylor Swift. Oh, sure. Right. Her, her her bus was there, right? It looked yeah. like a bus. It got closer. It was like a cardboard thing. But, uh, I mean, Taylor Swift, a uh, great example of, of a crossover now. Yeah. Because it started basically country, and now you would think of her more as pop, but she still has country, you know, uh, songs. Yeah. So, um, and, and we found some people in the Country Music Hall of Fame uh, reference that surprised me. Um, you know, Peter Frampton was there. Mm -hmm. what, Peter Frampton him in concert with, with Steve Miller, uh, my favorite artist. Why was Peter Frampton there? But he was, and others were referenced. Uh, and so there's a lot of crossover as well. Uh, we, we Elvis was there from his early days. Elvis from his early days, right? Sure, sure. You know, the king of rock and roll. And yet uh, you can't talk about country without talking about Elvis. Yeah. So that, that segmentation was uh, such a fascinating thing. Like, oh, you know, people probably you know, like one and don't like another, you, you might like bluegrass and not like modern or vice versa. Mm -hmm. and, and that's okay. But I, I was so unaware of it, just, just an ignorance. And we do this all the time, right? People look from the outside in and think of Christianity that's monolithic. They're all the same, or they look at the middle East and they think, Oh, they're all the same. No, no. They make mm -hmm. very big distinctions between who's Sunni and Shia. And even within Sunni, who is Wahhabi as opposed to something right more secular or whatever. So we, you know, the more, you know, the more you see um, now, 
you didn't know this, but later on that day, so uh, there was a tour to go to the Grand Old Opry after dinner, and I wasn't going to go, but then a free ticket emerged where Ooh. I was like, I, I can't not do it just for the sake of having said I've been there. So yeah. I've been there, right? So it, what a cultural field trip this was as well. So I was at the Grand Old Opry. Now, I don't recognize any of the names in this show. Jeannie Seeley, who is some old, like, she's like 80 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Riley Green, who's a new star that, again, I've never heard. I, I'm not going to say I, I never heard of because I never heard of any of these guys. Okay, <laughs> Connie Smith, uh, a new one named Yola, who's from Britain, but doing country, which was interesting. Don Schlitz, he wrote The Gambler. Mm. Uh, and so uh, many other uh, songs, Gary Mule Deer, who was a comedian, T. Graham Brown and Rhonda Vincent. Now, I, again, I don't recognize any of them, but at the same time, it was a really interesting experience to watch. Now, what I took away from that was at the Grand Ole Opry. We saw a young lady, uh, a new guy, uh, a new woman from um, Britain who's doing modern country. Um, we saw the guy that wrote The Gambler uh, and he was he was actually really interesting. I'll, I'll, um, yeah, so I'll talk about him in a moment. Bluegrass from Kentucky. We saw hymns. The old rugged cross was played, and some other. That was like the first thing I could track with. Right? <laughs> was was were the hymns. But so there was this large segment, um, large conglomeration of all these different segments. But they stayed in their lane because it was all country. They weren't like branching out to rap and classical, mm-hmm. and that would have made no sense. But within country, there was that large variation, and so that. That's what I saw there. Um, any any thoughts at that point? Well, again, uh, it's appealing to many generations. Also, yeah. you mentioned right. Connie Smith, and I think I told you about her uh, during our tour. The fact that she's married to Marty Stewart, and Marty Stewart's been playing with great country legends for a long time, and also in, in his own right. Here, she's eighty years old, and yet you have a newcomer from you know Britain. And so if you went there, if you were a country music fan, Darren, at your age, you could also take your parents there and you could take your children there. Yeah. Generations are going, I love country music. Yeah. And there was that's exactly what I observed there. It was they were all over the map. It Mm -hmm. wasn't a like 23 year old crowd, give or take two Mm -hmm. years. It was right. it was very wide range, so mm-hmm. um, maybe that's part of the appeal with you know the Grand Ole Opry. I I mean I still am trying to process what I saw, but they did a really good job with that market. And mm-hmm. so okay, let me switch gears and talk about the next thing. Next thing I saw was the team, and so I'm aware of this kind of thing with everything business. Business is a team sport, but there was this one display there where they had these bobbleheads of all the different types of people that you, that are needed um to make this happen so you have the musician okay you also have the songwriter okay i got that too but you also have the attorney the engineer the producer the tour manager the publicist the stylist the instrument tech the booking agent the media manager graphic artist driver merchandise person the roadie i mean there's a lot that goes into this that i just wasn't seeing in a similar vein uh, a friend of mine told me once uh that he was a big nascar fan i said oh I, you know, again, I grew up in New Jersey, so this is in the big NASCAR country, but I just, I can't understand what was so exciting about seeing the cars go around in circle. He's like, no, no, you don't understand. This is a team sport and they're working together as teams to try to do this. Um, all the background stuff, the marketing that goes into the uniforms, the, the, uh, the teamwork that goes into getting the, the, the vehicle ready or to get it 
uh, the tires changed and get it back out. And all of that is part of the drama of that. And when he, when he explained it to me like that, I understood because I understand team. I don't understand NASCAR still. (laughs) I don't understand the, the driving part. Like I would actually be more interested in what goes on behind the scenes than the actual event itself, but it's all team. And yeah, that makes sense that that's going on in the music biz as well. And you understand the music biz, so you can probably relate much more to this than I can. I saw that same display, and it still amazed me to actually have a visual there with all the bobble heads. And how many were there? Uh, At least 35? Yeah, something like that. It was it was a large number of just different types of people that have to be involved in order to make this happen. So yeah, as you said, that have to be there. Yeah, happen. There are many others that uh, are, are kind of tangents to that. I mean, all the vendors who are doing the uh, the programs, and of course, all the refreshments, uh, uh, all the advertising that's happening uh, it, it, locally every time they go to a different city. So all the externals. Uh, have to be there as well. Yep, that's but, right. Without, so, you know, at minimum, it's not happening. We're used to seeing like the lead singer of the band getting the like lion's share of the attention, right? Bono for you two or whatever, right? But beyond that, I, yeah, so this was yeah, here's this was really fascinating when I was at the Grand Ole Opry. So we had the guy that that the songwriter for the um, for the Gambler. Okay, mm-hmm. Kenny Rogers wrote the Gambler. Even I know. <laughs> as ignorant as I am that the gambler, Kenny Rogers, I, yeah, I get that. Right. I yeah. mean, you can't, you just can't escape some things like um, the, the song I know best uh, in country music is mama's don't let your babies grow up to be Kanye because that was funny. Okay. <laughs> Remember at the awards thing when they, when they did that. Yeah. So that, that was pretty funny. Okay. But even I can't, couldn't escape the gambler. Okay. So his, I think his name was Don Schlitz. I, I hope I have the right guy name. For sure. but I, I'm pretty sure that's him. Don Schlitz doesn't have a great voice. I mean, he really, he really wasn't that great of a singer, mm-hmm. but he had authority because he wrote the gambler. Gambler, and yeah. so he got the crowd going. So it was a weird thing that if you had that authority because you were the guy that wrote the song. And I just thought, like, wow, that was that was kind of an inspiring thought to me. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, so you can lead in multiple ways. You can be a leader by being the front man, but you could be the leader by being the guy that created the idea or the project or whatever it is. So that that's where my mind naturally went because I'm I messed up, <laughs> paid for my PhD with common sense. And so this is the kind of thing I think about. Right. Um, so, yeah, it, it, that was really, really a fascinating thing to see that the songwriter was like so like like they loved him. Like, I mean, you could see like, well, he's the guy that wrote the Campbell. I mean, <gasps> you know, I mean, it was like he was some kind of rock star in his own right for that. Anyway, so he maybe he was. I don't I don't know the guy, but um, it, it was it was really interesting. OK, um, so the weight of um, when we're walking around in the museum different people had different displays. And so Merle Haggard would have his little case and somebody else might have like a little um, plaque. And somebody else would have like this, like we we had to exhibit, I don't know, what what was that? Like um, 500 feet long for, I can't remember the new star. There was like 500 feet of a case full of her memorabilia and outfits and, and all this kind of thing. And I'm like, it's interesting how they wait. I, like I would have thought Merle Haggard, because like he's like one of the godfathers of this thing, right? I mean, one of the like great grandfathers of, of um, 
or, or somebody like that would have had a much larger display. So I thought it was interesting how they weighted who got what kind of atten- what level of attention um, throughout the the museum as well. Are you are you trying to look that up? I see. I see yeah, I, was, I, was, I couldn't remember her first name. I thought it was Kathy, but uh, Casey uh, Musgraves. Musgraves, that's right. Musgraves. Um, yeah, I don't know. She doesn't do anything for me, but yeah, <laughs> I I don't even know. I might I may very well have heard a song like an Applebee's or something and not known who that that's who it was. Yeah. But um, yeah, I I mean it's interesting to see how much weight was put on some people over another. And you know, here's the next point: not everybody gets equal props. Like people, mm-hmm. some people get far more attention than others. Maybe it's attention they don't deserve, but it's disproportional. It's not people. We don't, we don't, we have this idea that everybody should get equally amounts, right? Like you should get exact same amount as me, as me, as me, as me, right? For you know, show up and get your trophy. Doesn't work yeah. that way. Not in real life. I mean, some people are superstars. Some people barely get noticed. Some people are somewhere in between. Um, yeah. So that's what jumped out at me. What do, what do you think when you saw her display? Well, at first, it was like, who is she? Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, I, I kept asking my wife if she knew because for the last two years, she's been putting the music together yeah. for all of the events that we've done. And she goes, hmm, I'm not sure if anyone has asked for her yet or not for a yeah. wedding. And then you, you begin to kind of read about her and her success thus far. It really is amazing. But it kind so, of goes back to what you were talking about, about being at the Grand Ole Opry, because although she did not appeal to me, I mean, imagine me taking my, my kids there. Yeah. Uh, like, oh, Dad, we don't want to go and see all this old stuff. And also this huge display of someone they can relate to. Yeah, yeah. So th- I was just about to say, before you said that, that you've just positioned yourself not knowing her as one of the older characters or older appreciators of, yeah. of, of country music, as opposed to one of the newer set. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can like wh- whichever you like. Uh, I, here's another lesson. The clothes that were on display should never be worn in public. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> they all, they all look like they came either out of Michael Jackson's closet or out of a rummage sale or some kind of weird mashup of both of those things together. And I, I remember making that comment to you and just thinking like, oh, you know, you wouldn't walk down the street in this, or at least uh, you'd get some strange looks. Okay. At any rate. So then, then there were some big lessons that I took away from it. And w- the biggest lesson I think was this, that um, I felt like a foreigner the whole time. I said I was going to go as a cultural anthropologist, but I made the observation. This is probably about what atheists feel like in church. <laughs> Right. I mean, people that have no connection, didn't grow up in church, don't know exactly what goes on in the buildings or, you know, what the secret handshake is in order to <laughs> in order to get in, whatever that is. I am. OK, by the way, if you're not a church goer, there's no secret handshake and any church <laughs> right. wants you to come on in and and worship. OK, so come on in and, and you know, you're you're welcome. OK, so but there are, there's like a whole genre of uh, of jargon in, in church land. And I just Googled that real quick and found this thing, 12 Christianese words and phrases we say. So all these will resonate with you. You know exactly what these mean. These, But to somebody from the outside, they wouldn't know quite necessarily how to define fellowship or quiet time, a hedge of protection, small group, 
Traveling Mercies, Washed by the Blood. That one sounds scary, Ooh. right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> anointed, Hallelujah. Now, some things you'll you'll hear because you'll hear people say Hallelujah in popular culture, but you wouldn't necessarily know like the the meaning. Tithe, Communion, the Lord's Table, or Eucharist, the Body of Christ, or Lay Hands On, which sounds kind of scary again <laughs> if you don't know what they're talking about. Uh, it sounds like you're about to get mugged, uh, and so. That's that was my experience. It would be like an atheist in church in in that museum. I just don't know what what what's going on. I, I had a hard time processing where you saw. And, and this is kind of related. Um, you saw in Technicolor because the more, you know, the more you see. And I'm only seeing a very grainy, sketchy black and white because I, I don't have the, the pegs to hang it on. So what did you see while you were in there? Well, my atheist and church experience, you were seeing what? You, you, you kind of mentioned this earlier, as you're walking by, you're seeing just instruments. Mm -hmm. oh, eh, there's a guitar, eh, Martin, whatever, Gibson, whatever. Okay. And then I love to go, oh my gosh, some of the country classics uh -huh. came with this instrument right here. Yeah. And, you know, Hank Williams Sr. actually held this guitar. Oh, my goodness. Wow. You know, and even though I'm not a country music fan, it, it meant something to me to actually see visually what I had only heard so for so many years. You know, I mean, the music, what we hear, what we appreciate, it came from somewhere. Uh, and it came from somebody's performance. Mm -hmm. Also somebody's creativity to put the the music together like the guy that wrote the gambler we give him as much credibility as we do kenny rogers well that night they certainly did right because like yeah oh. i mean that was that was amazing that was mind-blowing to me because yeah he's not great a, a performer but they loved him yeah because yeah. he had he had undeniable credibility yeah uh, and one of uh, uh, the thing that uh, you haven't mentioned yet, and this meant something to me, is uh, what we now, I think, take for granted for entertainment, such as concerts coming to us, regardless mm -hmm. of the genre. But uh, seeing some of the uh, exhibits of people, uh, their early buses. And you might recall that uh, when I went to, you were still with us to the Ernest Tubb record store. Yep. I recalled 10 years ago seeing a bus in the store. I was mistaken. It wasn't that store. It was another record store that he also owned that was just out of town, but his bus. But the fact that these, these buses was kind of a, a, a new thing way back, uh, I guess, in the 40s, early 50s, where they could, and this is to me very innovative, take the show to different cities and the buses were not just for transportation, but became their home away from home. Mm -hmm. and, and to me, just kind of thinking about things we take for granted, yeah, had to have a start somewhere. Yeah, and it, and it, and they were so innovative, and and we keep innovating, right? We learned mm -hmm. a term in one of our sessions at the conference, uh, bricolage, which means in French, do it yourself, and they did it themselves. Like the thing I found interesting most of any of the things behind the display was early banjos being made and that kind of thing. Like, what? Who thought of this? I like, <laughs> like who who was the guy, the first guy to put that together or something like that? <laughs> now, I'm I'm not a banjo music fan, but. Wow. I mean, that's, it was pretty creative. So, um, yeah. So 
you can learn from anyone anywhere. And I was just building dendrites left and right. This is not my market, but it is on market. And I'd be a fool to, you know, make a caricature of it. And this is a huge block. The South, like as a, as a, as a um, segment within the United States, the South really latches onto this in a big way. And so, you know, to understand that is important. And even to understand, like when we're thinking about blocks, like we think, just in America-centric terms, America is only 5% of the world's population. How much more could I learn about all these other cultures in mm -hmm. this process and, and gain lessons from? Okay. At any rate, I'm about out of time. Uh, and I, I'm really grateful that you're here. When I was thinking about this, I always end uh, every episode with a quotation for contemplation. And, uh, and this one, I thought immediately of Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs said that creativity is just connecting things. That's such a great quote. He said, "It's creativity is just connecting things. It's just like pulling different ideas from different places. Like that that bit about authority I'm going to be using in class, that, that songwriter who had the audience eaten out of his palm of his hands, even with a bad voice, because he had the authority, the credibility, because he wrote The Gambler. So... Okay. Um, Steve Jobs, by the way, went on and said, when you when you ask creative people how they did something, they feel a little guilty because they didn't really do it. They just saw something. But that's creativity. That's the nature of it. So anyway, go go to a cultural experience that's not in your normal lane. You know, um, I mean, if you're uh, I'm not even going to give you examples. Just go, go, go learn, expand, grow, and you'll see new things and you'll appreciate that. Okay. I'm going to give you the last word, anything that you saw or you thought was interesting, or you want to relate about any of this. Yeah. I think just, uh, knowing where, uh, where the roots are and anything that mm -hmm. you appreciate today to look back and go, where did this all start? And one of the very first exhibits that we saw it was actually from the Appalachian uh, kind of hills, but they didn't create it. As you said, they may have uh, formed their own uh, uh, banjos and their instruments, but it came from uh, Europe, okay? Mm -hmm. You know, it's the early songs. And so if you think that, uh, I, I so appreciate fill in the blank today, it had a beginning. And I mm -hmm. think a lot of the appreciation for what you have today is finding where it started. Mm -hmm. Hey, that, that's, that's really insightful too. And thank, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, and, uh, thanks for even inviting me because I, we wouldn't be talking about this now had you not invited oh, yeah. me to come along and uh, it was so much fun. Yeah, it, it was, it was really a, a very, very interesting experience.